Why don't you turn in your Bibles in Matthew 1. We're going to pick up from behind the genealogy that we covered last week. And once you're there, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. So Matthew 1, 18 to 25. And these are the words of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had, been, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And you can be seated. It feels odd to be working through these verses when there is still green stuff outside and it feels like almost summer weather. I thought, I don't think I've ever really spent much time on this account while the corn silage has still been standing. And after the rain, I hope it will not still be standing at Christmas time, but we will find out. Uh, So we are looking at the birth narrative of Jesus. Last week we looked at his genealogy. And I think it it maybe ties in nicely with what Terry said, teaching through the Bible chronologically. I hope you saw already last week that even the birth of Jesus makes no sense without your Old Testament. Nothing about it makes sense without the Old Testament. And one of our goals as a church to present clearly as we work through the Gospel of Matthew is to see that the Old and New Testament together are one story of God. They, they, They can be distinguished, but they cannot be pulled apart. And we'll see more of that as we look at today's text. Normally at Christmas time, when we look at the story, we look at it from Luke's gospel. Usually Luke 2 is the traditional Christmas reading. And as we saw last week, Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. Uh, And we have more of a description of these events from Mary's perspective. Matthew is less concerned about all the exact details. Uh, Matthew is attempting to show Jesus' connection to David and to Abraham to show the line of succession uh, and to show that kind of covenantal handing off uh, of all things to Jesus Christ. And it therefore makes sense that he also focuses more on things from the standpoint of Joseph rather than of Mary. In both of Matthew and Luke's family trees, the line of succession from Abraham to David, and then to Jesus, comes through Joseph, even though Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. However, his being betrothed to Mary, Jesus' mother, does make him, in a very real sense, Jesus' father, and it does make Jesus a genuine, legitimate son and heir to Joseph. And so despite the fact that both of these genealogies are counted through Joseph, It does appear, if you do this closely, and we won't do that today in the interest of time, but if you look at these genealogies very closely and you map it together with what else we know about these families in the Bible, it does appear that Mary and Joseph are in fact very, very, very closely related. Probably first cousins, possibly first cousins once removed. But uh, that's out of our custom, so it maybe seems odd. But what it does show is that Jesus is a son of David 
on both sides. He is genetically a son of David through his uh, mother, and he is spiritually or covenantally a son of David through Joseph, through his father, even though he doesn't carry Joseph's uh, biological DNA, he is truly an heir and a son of Joseph in a very real sense. He is a legitimate successor to David, both ways. And so we examined how so many of Jesus' ancestors lived lives that foreshadowed Christ. And this is called typology. That's what we looked at last time. And I realized I didn't define typology very well. I basically described it as the meaning behind the stories, and that's true. But really what typology is, is nonverbal prophecy. It's prophecy in the forms of people, places, and things. It's not spoken, as in thus saith the Lord, but it is imaged, right? So in David being a shepherd king, he is without words imaging the kind of person that Jesus Christ is going to be. That is the study of typology. It is prophecy with people, places, and things instead of with words. And we'll pick up on that here today. Verse 18, we just read that the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And so we know that Mary and Joseph were betrothed, And we're so familiar with this fact that we tend to brush it over because we read about it every Christmas uh, that they're betrothed and and we don't think much further of it. But betrothal was a full pledge that could only be broken by divorce. In that sense, betrothal was much stronger than our custom of engagement. Our custom of engagement is pretty serious, but it's frequently broken off. It's not treated as marriage. Uh, And in in, in the biblical custom, in the biblical world, uh, betrothal was only to be exited upon divorce. So it was a very serious thing. It's much stronger than engagement. Betrothal was a full pledge of marriage. And a betrothed couple was considered to be husband and wife, yet in such a way that sexual relations were still considered immoral. Okay, So they are counted, legally they're counted as husband and wife. You, you could only get out divorce. And yet still marriage was genuinely a further step. To be physically involved during your betrothal was, in fact, a sin, just as it remains during the engagement time today. So we have this unique situation. From Mary's standpoint, betrothal to Joseph offers her all the protection and provision of marriage and of having a husband, and yet in such a way that her virginity is naturally kept intact. It naturally remains. And this is valuable, this is indispensable actually from the standpoint of Jesus' human nature. Jesus is conceived in such a way, given the circumstances, given Mary's betrothal to Joseph, Jesus is conceived in such a way that Joseph is actually his father. He has a real earthly father, not a physical one, uh, but in terms of the family structure, Joseph really is the father of Jesus by virtue of this betrothal. And yet, he is conceived by a virgin because betrothal allows her to be married Uh, while remaining a virgin. And so this is an interesting thing. It's an interesting custom. And providentially, of course, we'd say, well, this was all providentially designed perfectly by God to give the benefits of marriage while still keeping a virgin birth intact. So Jesus is born with a covenant head over him, and yet uh, there's no chance. Had, Had the virgin birth or had the virgin conception happened after their marriage, one Mary wouldn't have truly been a virgin, But you could always say, well, yeah, that's just someone's misinterpretation because it could have been Joseph's physical son. The way it happened, it could not be his physical son, and yet he remains a father. So in the providence of God, betrothal is the perfect circumstance for Jesus to come into this world. 
The setup is perfect. And the text says uh, that before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And so we know that the Holy Spirit is the one who has created this life in Mary. And this is made more clear by the fact that this didn't happen in the context of regular married life, as we have already said. The miraculous conception also provides the basis for Christ's divinity. We say he is truly God and truly man, and those are both fully 100% true. Growing up, I I always affirmed the virgin birth, but I didn't understand the significance of it. I thought it was just a miracle just to show God's power in the situation, Uh, but any party trick would have done, any miracle would have done, uh, and that's not at all the case. The virgin birth has significance beyond showing God's power to create something out of nothing. It actually goes much deeper uh, and is much more thorough than that. What the virgin birth does is allow, to be Jesus, is, is allow Jesus to be really, fully, truly human. Jesus starts as a little tiny baby in the womb of a woman and developed little piece by little piece just like everyone in this room. A little heart starts to beat. Little bones start to be formed together. Little eyeballs come out. Jesus is really a human. 100% human. Okay, He really is. and the fact that he is the seed of the woman, we talked about that last week, but not of a man, also allows Jesus to be conceived in such a way that no original sin is assigned to him. Terry showed the bags here. What were they called? Uh, Belums, okay? So the reason me and you are born with a sinful nature, the reason that we by default hate God, is because we are born in Adam. We are sons and daughters of Adam. That's why the human soul hates God from its beginning. Not because that's a necessary function of being human, but that is a necessary function of being a son or a daughter of Adam. The virgin birth allows Jesus to be human in such a way that no original guilt from the first parents is imputed to him. He's really human, but without the curse of Adam on him. This is the significance of the virgin birth. If Jesus was a normal son of Adam, He wouldn't have been able to live his sinless life. And even if he had been externally sinless in terms of his behavior, he would still be born under the curse of sin and he would have been incapable of pleasing God. This would have been impossible for him to please God's holy standard. So the miracle of the virgin birth is that Jesus is one man, but he possesses two natures. He has a human nature, but one that is not corrupted by sin or the fall. Okay? And again, we think, well, if human beings are are born totally depraved, we're born under original sin, it's a necessary feature of humanity to be sinful. And after the fall, yes, that is true. However, it's not an absolute feature of being human. We read about that in the catechism this morning, right? is Is it a necessary feature to be human that we're sinful? Well, no. Were Adam and Eve sinful before the fall? Will you be sinful in the new creation after the resurrection? No. Will you still be human? Yes. Okay, so you see how this works? You see how this works? Uh, it's, it's not necessary for humans to be sinful. It's necessary after the fall that we are sinful, but that is going to be reversed. That is going to be pushed back uh, in Jesus Christ. So Jesus can be truly human without being sinful in the slightest. He receives a divine nature that is in perfect unity with the Godhead, with the rest of the Trinity, and which is fully and truly capable of pleasing his Father. We read in verse 19 going on, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
And so Joseph here is described as a, as a good man in a difficult situation. He and Mary both know, between the two of them, that they have not been physically involved whatsoever. And yet, here he has this betrothed bride who is pregnant. So we all know what this looks like. Everything has the appearance of immorality between them. It either means that the two of them have done something, or worse, that she is guilty of adultery. But either way, this looks like sin has entered the situation. And Joseph really is in a difficult situation. For it appears that if he carries on with his betrothal, he is more or less admitting guilt. He is admitting that he has dishonored his future bride. And yet if he divorces her, he's also communicating that she is guilty of adultery. So no matter what he does, there's an admission of sin here. Right? You see the weight of this? Can you imagine being Joseph and trying to work your way through the moral implications of the situation you're in and what you need to do? I think we would feel the weight of that if we were in that situation. There's a seeming admission of guilt no matter what. And as we have already seen, betrothal was a serious enough sin that it required divorce to get out of. And if Mary was pregnant by another man, the provision of God's law not only granted Joseph the right to divorce her, but she's guilty of a capital crime, according to Deuteronomy 22, 23, and 24. And so this isn't unlike the situation that Judah found himself in when he found out last week that Tamar was pregnant by him in Genesis 38. But because Joseph is a just man, he senses the need to get out of this situation that has all the appearance of sin being all the way through it. But also, because he is a just man, he doesn't want Mary to come under a penalty that she doesn't deserve. And this is why he settles on doing it quietly. And there's an application for us here when we think about the moral dilemma that Joseph would have been in for ourselves. Surely we've all been in seemingly intractable moral situations where there's like six or seven different principles all at play at once. And it's not by any means clear cut. How do we manage our way out of this? Because there's this biblical principle and there's this one and there's this one and we're kind of hemmed in and what, what do we do? Uh, I think the, the example of Joseph and seeing how this works, that there can be multiple principles in play at once, should help us to be gracious and offer a judgment of charity Uh, We want that when we're working through those situations, and surely it makes sense to give others a judgment of charity when they're working through things that have many, many moral components to them. We want to give a judgment of charity in a complex situation. Moving on in verse 20, it says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. And wouldn't we like that? When we're in those tough moral situations, wouldn't it be nice to just have God come in a dream and tell us what to do? Uh, and indeed, many people suggest uh, that, we off, that we pursue decision-making that way. And the Bible does give accounts of where God supernaturally does give guidance and direction. But we are nowhere instructed to pursue this. Joseph wasn't pursuing this. It just happened in God's good timing and in God's good way. So this is not something that we should expect. This is something Joseph did not expect. We have to normally work through our problems the regular way. But here, because there is so much significance of the redemptive historical stuff that is happening, God does actually intervene to move his plan forward and to give further revelation to Joseph on what to do. It's fitting, given the significance of this situation in redemptive history. And so the instruction that Joseph receives from the angel removes all doubt about Mary's purity and her innocence. So if he had any inclinations to 
to wonder if maybe another man was involved and it just seemed out of character for her. This removes all the doubt. He now knows that she is pure if he wasn't already fully convinced. And the language about the Holy Spirit being the source of this pregnancy, uh, when you look at the account in in, uh, Luke 2, it talks about how uh, the Holy Spirit overcame Mary. And it's much the same language about, remember in Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit hovering over the deeps? It's the same kind of language of the Holy Spirit overcoming, and, and there's a fresh creation, there's a new creation out of nothing that happens. It's similar language. And this should start to point us to what a, what a miraculous thing it is that Jesus Christ is a special creation of God in a way that no other baby has been or will be. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, it says in verse 21, for he will save his people from his sin. And so again, this is part of the angel's instruction of what to do in this situation. And there's a few things that are worth noting about the naming of Jesus. Even apart from the name Uh, Just the very act of naming, have you ever thought about this? That the act of naming something is a show of authority? Who names a baby? The parents. Why? Because they have authority over the baby. Okay? We name things because uh, we have genuine responsibility and authority over them. Adam was exercising his authority when he named creation. And when we are following biblical customs uh, at weddings, when a woman takes her husband's name, authority is also being conveyed. It's fitting for a woman to take her husband's name. And it's fitting that in God's purposes, he has decided upon the name for this son. He is showing a special stamp uh, of authority and of significance to this child. God has named other people in the past. He named Adam. He changed the name of Abram and Sarah and Jacob to Israel, and he names John the Baptist, and now Jesus. So the act of naming is a show of authority, a show of responsibility, but then the name Jesus is rich in meaning. It's the same name as Joshua, Yeshua, in the Old Testament. And We know the Old Testament Joshua was a successor to the, uh, to the prophet-priest Moses. Okay? And so if we're thinking about typology, well, is Jesus a prophet-priest? Well, yes, of course he is. He is a greater Joshua. He is a greater successor to Moses' office uh, as prophet and priest. Numbers 13.16 says that uh, Joshua had originally been named Hosea, but Moses renamed him to Joshua. And Matthew Henry, commenting on the significance of the name, says this, Moses changed the first syllable of the name Jehovah, and so made it Jehoshua to imitate the Messiah, who was to bear that name should be Jehovah, he is therefore able to save to the uttermost. Neither is there salvation in any other. And so what Matthew Henry is saying, that this name is fitting. The name Jesus says he is going to save his people from these sins, and he is going to be a greater Joshua. Okay? You think Joshua was hot stuff, and he was, and when that trumpet sounded, the walls of Jericho fell. What happens when this Joshua is going to blow his trumpet? Right? He's going to tear a curtain instead of a wall, but ultimately when that trump sounds, all creation is undone and remade. He is a greater Joshua, a greater heir to Moses' seat. In verse 22 and 23, it says that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And now Matthew does something that we're going to see often in this gospel, is that he makes a direct allusion to the Old Testament, 
to how something is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And there's three main ways in which Matthew does this throughout the gospel. One is a direct prediction. Uh, a prophet says something and it's directly fulfilled in Jesus that we have here. Uh, there's also those cases where there's a, full, uh, a fuller and a deeper meaning of an Old Testament text. So the prophet says something. Uh, in the first instance, it applies to something that's going to happen in the next couple of years right in front of them. But then we see that there's a greater fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Okay? And so some of the fulfillment is a deeper and fuller meaning of something that's already happened. And in the third sense, there are these typological connections between Christ and the history of Israel. And as we follow the life of Jesus, what we're going to see is this. It's the history of Israel repeated. Okay? Jesus is Israel. The history of Israel is repeated perfectly in Jesus' life. And think of that, right? 40 years in the desert, 40 days of temptation. There's going to be lots of that. We're going to see Israel pave the way for Jesus, and he is going to relive the life of Israel. He is the perfect Israel. In this instance, we have the prophecy about a virgin conceiving, coming from Isaiah 7.14. And if you read that passage, there is one of these upfront fulfillments. The, the prophecy in the first instance does seem to apply to the son that Isaiah and his wife are soon going to have. Remember his name? He's got a weird name. Meher Halal Hashbaz, I think. I didn't write it down. Uh, but it seems to be that there is a, a primary fulfillment in Isaiah's own flesh and blood son. And this has been the, the cause of considerable controversy. In Isaiah, in the Hebrew language, the word that Isaiah uses is the word Alma, which refers to a young woman, a young maiden, and is more generally used for a virgin. And some liberal theologians have, who deny the virgin birth look at that and say, well, the word can mean a young woman. It's not necessary that Mary was a virgin. Jesus was just a regular guy, and because we're liberal Christians, none of this actually matters because we can all live like John Lennon anyway, so right? let's all just listen to Imagine and live our hippie Christian lives, uh, and of course that is not the case. Okay? Uh, the, the fact that the word Alma means a virgin and a young maiden allows for this two-phase fulfillment. It can legitimately apply to Isaiah's son, but in a more meaningful, final, terminal way, it refers to Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, an actual virgin. <clears throat> and the way Matthew uses this word, uh, is, it leaves all doubt undone. Uh, in, in the Greek, it's clear that this refers very strictly to a virgin woman. Okay? So in the Hebrew, can it mean both? Yes, it can. But clearly, what Isaiah has in mind and what Matthew makes crystal clear is that this is an actual virgin. This is a miraculous conception. This is a special creation by God. And in our own time, we've had other people suggesting that the virgin birth isn't such a big deal. Rob Bell, I've mentioned before, had suggested, well, what if we find that Jesus had earthly father DNA? Would that really matter? And to Rob Bell, the answer is no, it makes no difference. Because we still have the ethics of Jesus. See, and what you people don't understand is all this blood atonement stuff. That's butcher shop religion. What we want is the ethics of Jesus. It's the new variant of liberalism uh, come to life again. And the virgin birth is almost always a casualty of liberal Christianity. And that means we all the more need to understand the significance of it and how this is not up for negotiation in any way, shape, or form. The virgin birth is critical for the gospel to be possible at all. The sin bearer has to be someone who is not under the curse of Adam. This is essential. And the text in Matthew makes it clear, as I mentioned, that this is not a generic young woman 
but an actual virgin. And people at the time of Matthew's writing, we tend to write them off as though they didn't understand science and so it's just kind of the language of the day. Clearly these people knew how babies were made. Otherwise, why draw attention to the fact that Mary and Joseph weren't physically involved yet? They they understood what was happening. This isn't just a bunch of backwards ancient people. Under the old system... God was pleased to dwell symbolically among his people. And we see this in a number of forms. God sometimes shows up as a pillar of flame. Sometimes he's present with the Ark of the Covenant. He's present in the tabernacle and then finally in the temple. But now he is appearing in the flesh. No longer symbolically among his people. Now he is really flesh and blood among his people. He appears in the flesh. And we call this in Christian jargon. We call this the incarnation, and that's maybe a word that you're also so familiar with you don't think about it. And the word carne there just refers to flesh. Think of how that's a root in so many words that we talk about. A carnivore eats meat. If something is carnal, that means it's of the flesh. If you go into a battlefield and there's carnage, that means there's flesh and blood and meat strewn about it. Some people talk about reincarnation, coming back again in physical form. Even see it in something as mundane as a recipe, chicken con carne, what, or chili con carne. What does that mean? Well, chili with the meat in it. Okay? Carne, the incarnation, refers to flesh and blood. This is a physical man with real flesh, real blood flowing through his real veins, just like yours. And so Jesus Christ is the one in whom God and man touch each other again and make ultimate contact. Heaven has broken through into the world when Christ takes on a human nature, and a human body. And this coming together of God and man is the literal turning point of all of history. And we still count history this way. I've mentioned this before. How are years calculated? Before Christ and Anno Domini. Before Christ and the year of our Lord. And even though uh, unbelievers seek to change those words, the year zero is still the baseline. You cannot escape from the fact that literally all of human history turns on the hinge of God becoming a man. God taking on a human form. The incarnation changes the world forever. It cannot be the same kind of place. And every time someone says what year it is, they are admitting history cannot be what it once was. It's changed forever. Everything is different. Why? Because God has become a man. That is why he has shown up in human form When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And it's amazing the clarity that Joseph gets from an angel encounter. Joseph has now abandoned his plan to divorce Mary quietly, and he carries on with the original plan of marriage. And respecting the nature of everything that's happened means that they don't consummate their marriage until after Jesus is born. So she remains a virgin until after that birth. You're no doubt familiar that some in church history have suggested that Mary remained a virgin for the rest of her life. Uh, And typically, this this is actually Roman Catholic dogma, they insist that Mary remained a virgin until she died. Well, what about Jesus' brothers? Typically, that's explained that those were his cousins by, uh, by his aunt Mary, or that Joseph brought in children from a previous marriage and he was a widower. I'll leave that to you to decide how plausible that is, but I think that this idea is questionable to say the least. The fact that he didn't know her until this would suggest that after this, they carried on a normal married life. He did know his wife at some point. 
But regardless, we need to be aware uh, of some of these claims. And the chapter then closes by letting us know that Joseph had obeyed all that the angel had commanded him, and he gave the name Jesus to the baby, just according to instruction. Wonderful. What does this mean for us? Well, hopefully we've seen the significance and, in fact, the necessity of the virgin birth for getting us a Messiah who can be fully God and fully man. And related to that is the significance of God and man being united together in one person. And the incarnation, therefore, does become a life and death issue for us. And I think many people conceive of Jesus this way, and maybe you have, and if you have, don't be ashamed, because I have previously too, where we think about, what, well, what does it mean that Jesus is God and man? Well, it means essentially that the outside of Jesus is a man. He's got a man's body, but everything on the inside of Jesus is God, right? So it's, he's a man on the outside, and he's God on the inside, Kind of like if I would climb into a gorilla suit on the outside, I'd look like a gorilla, but it's still just me on the inside. And I think many people see that Jesus is only divine on his inside. And the reason we do that is because in our own experience, how many natures are in any given person? One. I've got one body and there's only one me inside of me. Okay, There's only one nature inside of me, just like you. So we are used to kind of one, you know, admit one only per customer. If you get one body, there's only one nature inside of it. But here's what's so important. Jesus is not just divine on the inside. Jesus has two natures. He has the divine nature, to be sure, but he also has a human nature, not just a human body. Okay? Your body is not tempted by sin. You are. You are. Your mind is. Your nature is. Okay? Jesus needs to have two natures, the divine nature to please God, but he also has to have the nature of a man. What do natures do? Natures get tired. Natures get tempted by sin. Natures weep when their friend dies. Bodies don't do that. People do. Okay? Jesus has two natures, fully God and fully man. That's not, when, we, when we talk about that, we don't mean the man of a body and then just pure divinity inside. No, no, no. There's two natures in Christ. This is why it's possible. Have you ever thought of this? Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. Right? According to his humanity, he doesn't know. Who decided the day and the hour? Jesus. Because <laughs> he's the triune God. Okay? Touching his divinity, he knows it because he wrote the story. Touching his humanity, he doesn't know. He's just a man. That is the miracle of the incarnation. That is the significance of it. Jesus retains his divine nature, and he adds a human nature and a human body onto that. So there's one person with two natures inside of him. And these natures, they don't get confused. They don't get mixed together. They're not oil and water. They're separated. No one knows how this works, but we know that it does, and we know that it must. Jesus must have the same kind of nature that me and you have for him to be tempted by sin, to become victorious over it, and to heal the whole person. He retains his divine nature. And this is the miracle. Think of this. There's this baby being born, and there's shepherds watching, and it's the Christ who they are coming to worship, who is holding every star in its place, who is sustaining their life as they go seek him. Okay? The little one that they are coming to worship is holding the cosmos in place. And you zoom out so that the earth gets so small and all these stars are fixed exactly in their place. In the furthest galaxies that we cannot see yet, that little baby is holding all of this in place because he's God. And you know what he did for you? 
He had to grab his mom's finger so he could learn his first step. He had to learn his alphabet. He had to take on a true nature of a true man to heal all of us. The early church father, uh, Gregory of Nazaranzas, tells us that Christ can only heal that which he takes on. Okay, so for the resurrection to be true, what, what does Jesus need? A real body. For Jesus to heal your soul, what does he need to take on? A human soul, a human nature. He needs the kind of mind and the kind of will and the kind of soul that you have. He must take that on or else he cannot heal it and perfect it. So he adds this human nature to who he already is. And again, this is significant that these two natures exist in the one man. Who can, who can satisfy God's demands, his perfect, holy demands for absolute perfection? Who can satisfy God other than God? Jesus must be God. Only God can make God happy. That's it. He must be God. Jesus is God. And who can represent you? God can't represent you. You're a different stuff. Who can represent you? Someone like you. A man. A man can represent you. A man with a human nature and a human will and human emotions. That's who can represent you before the Father. Okay, that is why Jesus came as the God-man. Fully God to satisfy the demands of God. Fully man so he can represent you and heal every part of you. Mind, body, and soul. Every part. And again... This is what Gregory of Nazianzus means when he says, that which is not assumed is not healed. Jesus assumed full humanity, right down to a human mind. The gospel heals the whole man because Christ took the nature and the body of a whole man. Mind, will, soul are just as renewed at the resurrection as the physical body is. And so what I want us to leave and to contemplate here this morning is that God gives us a whole Christ, and in doing so, he gives us a whole gospel for a whole renewed man and woman in glory. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you did not leave us lost. You would have been perfectly just and holy in leaving us in our sin and providing us with no solution. And yet, Lord, in your kindness, you condescended. You sent your Son, who was there with you before the foundation of the earth, to come and take on a human body, to add a human nature to who he is so he could walk through the valley of your judgment that we deserve. Lord, he could obey your law perfectly, satisfy your wrath perfectly and once and for all. Lord, I pray that we would all be overcome by the depth and the riches of what it means that Jesus is fully God and fully man and how the incarnation forever changes history. Lord, I pray that you'd be with each one of us as we consider how uh, this provides the basis for the gospel healing all of us, for renewing our minds, for renewing our wills, for giving us resurrected bodies to enjoy you forever. Lord, help us to dwell on that, especially as we want to continue to unfold this gospel and its implications for our lives and for what you are doing in history. Lord, help us now to be gripped by this truth, to drink deeply, and to enjoy you and to love you all the more. Thank you for your kindness and pray that we would glorify you as we consider this truth in the week to come. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So the charge is this. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ reminds us of the extent of the curse. 
All creation has been corrupted, including all those who are born of Adam. Original sin has contaminated everything. But God, in his rich mercy and wisdom, found a way to bring heaven and earth, God and man, together again. This happens through his Son, Jesus Christ. In Christ, God and man can touch each other once more. In Christ, all the righteous requirements of God's law are met fully and completely, so that the Father is truly satisfied. In Christ, man has a new representative to go before the Father, to do what our first representative failed to do. In Jesus Christ, the curse is reversed in its entirety, and the whole man is renewed, mind, will, soul, and body. We are made new, first in stages, slowly, and then at the resurrection, perfectly and eternally. So as we leave, let us remember that through Jesus Christ, God has set up his dwelling with us forever. Christian, Jesus is always close at hand, always interceding for you, always conforming you more and more to his image, preparing you for eternity. Live this week in light of the transforming truth that God has given a whole Savior for a whole you. Then receive the benediction from 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and body and soul be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And go in peace.